Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Today is Wednesday, hump day, September 28th, 2022. Lots of stuff going on today. Podcast today has got a great interview with Michael Poon, who is an attorney from the Pacific Legal Foundation, talking about the challenge to Joe Biden's academia bailout that they filed on Monday and or early Tuesday. I'm not sure when exactly it was filed, but the lawsuit is an attempt to uh, enjoin and permanently stop Joe Biden's student loan debt forgiveness plan, which is going to cost at least $400 billion, maybe $500 billion. If you look at the Penn Wharton model, it might be as large as a trillion dollars. Uh, one man is trying to stand up to stop this. Pacific Legal's Michael Poon is going to talk to us about that. You're really going to want to um, hear this interview. It's a very interesting uh, look at what the strategy is for Pacific Legal Foundation and what their arguments are going to be. But we've got other stuff going on today, obviously. Um, we have, uh, I had fun starting off this morning with Don Lemon's exchange with an NOAA director last night in trying to describe what was going on with Hurricane Ian. And apparently Don Lemon wasn't listening to his own interview because as the um, as the NOAA director, I believe his name is Jamie Rome, uh, was explaining some very interesting technical details about a split eyewall and how that um, might signal that the hurricane would not intensify any further. It's already a Category 4 as it's starting to hit land as, as I'm recording this. Uh, instead of talking about that, Don Lemon turned around and wanted to talk about climate change. And, the, and Rome said... Uh, you know, we could talk about that another time, but let's stick with this hurricane because this is what is actually the news at the moment. Lemon wasn't listening to him, came back with the climate change uh, argument. And Rome then finally said, look, you can't go by one <laughs> storm to talk about climate change. And Don Lemon said, well, you know, I grew up in Florida and it's, there, there's no doubt that hurricanes are intensifying. It's just a question of why. Well, hurricanes intensify on their own. They always do. They go from tropical storms to hurricane status because they're intensifying. And in fact, this particular season has been a very slow season for intensifying storms. Uh, now, that's not to say that the season's over. It's not to say that we're not going to see more of these things because sometimes it just shifts later into the season. Uh, but in truth, and weather.com covered this a month ago, is it was very slow, maybe the slowest hurricane season in 30 years. Uh, prior to Labor Day. And so the idea that somehow one storm is indicative of climate change is ridiculous on its face, especially in that context. Uh, but also ridiculous on its face is the idea that Don Lemon is a journalist because he's conducting an interview. He's not listening to the person he's talking about. He is manipulating the interview to talk about his particular advocacy issue even though it contradicts exactly what his own interview guest just and an expert in the field just got done telling him. Um, he's clearly not listening. If you watch this clip, he's clearly not listening to what uh, Dr. Rome has to say on this, uh, on Hurricane Ian. Plus, I mean, the issue here is the hurricane itself and its impact on Florida, which is going to be tremendous. And it, I mean, it's true of every hurricane that's hit Florida uh, at this level, which we have a very long history of all the way back through all of the re recorded weather events, large 
intense hurricanes keep hitting Florida. Why? Because it's in the tropics and the subtropics, and that's where these hurricanes go through. So this is not new. <laughs> and, and, and the intensity of hurricanes is not new. And yet, here we are, still uh, still having Don Lemon manipulate that. So I have a post up about that. It's been pretty popular this morning. Uh, more is coming in on the Nord Stream and Nord Stream 2 uh, leaks. Uh, Europe is now convinced that these were violent acts, that this was sabotage. And the question is now is who done it? Uh, there's a lot of fingers pointing to Russia as a, uh, in making a attempt, making an attempt, excuse me, to, uh, to stoke unhappiness and fear in among European populations and certainly unhappiness over energy prices. Gazprom coincidentally just announced uh, either late yesterday or early today that they were going to cut off gas um, gas uh, transmission through Ukraine. And that's part of a longstanding dispute over fees. Um, but it's clear that Russia is trying to is trying to undercut support for Ukraine by uh, destabilizing the energy industry in in Europe. I mean, just simply the, the whole cutoff of the Nord Stream uh, gas transmissions managed to do that on its own. But conducting sabotage in the Baltic Sea is an escalation of this, if in fact Russia was the one who did this. Now, there's speculation going around that the United States did it, which is absurd. <laughs> <laughs> what are we going to get out of this? There's, there's no, there's no upside to that uh, for the United States. We didn't. The, the point of opposing Nord Stream and Nord Stream Two for the last 15 years was to keep Russia from invading Ukraine and other places. Well, Russia's already invaded Ukraine, so I mean, the, the Germany's cut off uh, Nord Stream Two. The Russians have cut off Nord Stream One there's nothing to be gained from us sabotaging, sabotaging a pipeline. Uh, I mean, I think it's kind of really silly to even speculate on that. Of course, this is all speculation until we find out what exactly happened. But um, if you're looking at the qui bono, um, you know, Russia's up there. And the reason why is that Russia really needs to undercut support for the, in Europe for the, uh, for the war in Ukraine, you know, for, for Ukraine itself. Because he's losing that war, and he knows he's losing that war. He's about to throw 300,000 troops, untrained, for the most part, unequipped, onto the front lines, hoping that quantity will be a quality all of its own. He's going to throw, up, throw them up there against experienced combat troops uh, from Ukraine who are just going to cut through them like butter. Um, and all this is, is really just a very bloody delaying tactic, because once those forces collapse, he's not going to have anything left. So his only out right now is to basically chew off his foot in order to escape the trap that he just sprung on himself over the last seven months. Uh, that's the reason why Europe, uh, European leaders are now pointing the finger back to Russia on this sabotage. And frankly, I think it's, a, it's at least a um, solid case. It's you know solid speculative case, I should say. Solid speculative case. We'll find out more when they get more evidence on this, and maybe we won't, maybe every, maybe it's in everybody's best interest to keep it uh, more ambiguous. But um, yeah, and as my, my friend Steve Eggleston in the comments mentioned, you know, this may have just been a proof of concept warning uh, to Europe and that the North Sea pipelines might be next um, uh, unless 
the EU backs off of support for Ukraine. So that's something that I'm sure that they're keeping in mind as well. Um, other uh, other stories that are up there. I mean, we got some great stuff from uh, from Karen. She updated her um, her analysis from last night in a new post this morning about uh, Joe Manchin getting shut down by uh, Democrats on his permitting uh, bill. And they're trying to blame Republicans for this, but they didn't even have all the Democrats on board for Joe Manchin's permitting bill. He was trying to get it rescued by, re- by the Republicans he stiffed on the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, I don't know what he was expecting. I don't know why Republicans expected Joe Manchin to remain firm all along on that. I mean, clearly he was looking for a way to cut a deal and he's a Democrat, right? And I know Dwayne and I used, Dwayne and I've had some debates over this, about how that was a betrayal. (laughs) Manchin's a Democrat. He doesn't owe the Republicans anything. It's not a betrayal. Uh, it was, it was perhaps a little too optimistic for Republicans to think that Joe Manchin was going to hold the line entirely on this. But once he did that, once he cut that deal, I think Manchin was thinking that Republicans were going to rescue him. And um, clearly Republicans didn't have any interest in doing that. Um, so he looks foolish. He looks humiliated. Didn't get what he didn't get at all what he wanted out of that massive spending bill. He's not even going to get the deficit reduction he wanted because Joe Biden turned around and and uh, and, and pledged to spend four or five hundred billion dollars on forgiving uh, student debt. So, again, um, Karen's got a post up on that. Uh, B just got a good one up on, uh, GM backpedaling on back to work orders. Um, it, it, sort of predictably, I think that's, I think that's kind of predictable. Um, and I have a piece up and I know that a lot of hot air readers are not going to agree with this, but I think Mitch McConnell made a smart decision backing the electoral count act. Um, I think it's smart politics. I think it's smart legislation. I think it, um, I think that the original Electoral Count Act was at least legally sufficient <laughs> to instruct Congress as to what its actual role was. Um, but since it apparently hasn't worked for the last 20 years, which is a point that Mitch McConnell has made, is that Democrats have abused this too to uh, try to do stunt votes against um, against states submitting their electors in presidential elections. Um, clearly, Clearly, Congress isn't taking the constitutional hint, and so a a more robust ECA, which delineates these functions as the clearly ceremonial functions that they are, is a good idea. Uh, it just simply will head off this kind of nonsense that we've seen for the last twenty years in regards to presidential elections that you know the outcomes of which people you know certain people in Congress don't like. It started with Barbara Boxer. Uh, I, I take it back. I didn't even start with Barbara Boxer because I think Boxers was in two, the 2004 election. Uh, I forget who it was that raised the objection in 2000 uh, for the 2000 election. Might have been Boxer that time as well. But I mean, it's it's sheer idiocy. Congress's role in presidential elections is to count the electoral college ballots, and that's it. Even under the existing ECA, the only judgment that Congress can make is when the states officially submit two different slates of electors, and then Congress does have to vote as to which slate of electors they're going to accept. Other than that, Congress has no role in overriding the sovereign state's certified election results. The states elect the president. Congress does not elect the president. It is strict. The electoral college count is strictly a ceremonial process by which the election is concluded. So the new ECA is makes that much more clear. 
McConnell's right in backing it. I think it's a smart move. Uh, speaking of constitutional challenges, you're going to enjoy this uh, interview that I did with Michael Poon. Uh, we talk about the, the larger constitutional issues here, but Michael Poon argues that they've got a good case on the merits as well as a good case on standing with um, Frank Garrison versus the Department of Education. And I think they do as well. I think that the, the a federal judge is going to look at this and say, this is exactly the case that we're looking for to shut down this unconstitutional abrogation of Congress's sole authority to appropriate funds, which is not actually an explicit issue in this uh, in this lawsuit, but certainly is going to come up, especially uh, in some amicus briefs that end up um, uh, that end up being um, in the record, if not at the trial court level, certainly at the appellate court level. So stay tuned for Michael Poon from Pacific Legal Foundation, PacificLegal.org fascinating conversation. I know you're really going to enjoy it. And then stay tuned for a brief message on how you can help support our efforts here by joining our VIP and VIP uh, gold member programs. And uh, and by the way, uh, VIP gold means you get a chance to sit in on the, on the weekly chats that we've had today with uh, Cam Edwards and myself and our VIP gold members. So be sure to pay attention to that last little advertisement at the end. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. You know, yesterday there was a huge development in the uh, in Joe Biden's academia bailout, which is that finally somebody stood up to challenge it. And uh, Pacific Legal Foundation uh, uh, is now representing one of their own employees, Frank Garrison. And here to talk about that is Michael Poon, who's one of the attorneys involved in this lawsuit against the student loan debt forgiveness plan from Joe Biden. Uh, first off, Congratulations on on um, standing up and, and for Frank Garrison for standing up as well. Yeah, yeah. The credit is definitely uh, to Frank and uh, thank you. So here's the big question, right? I mean, because we've all said this is it's not just illegal, it's unconstitutional on, 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 on a few different bases. Right. Um, and I've read the lawsuit and or at least I skimmed it. Um, and. I see where you're you're going to be challenging the Heroes Act, or at least a portion of the Heroes Act, which I think is a really good um, place to start. Uh, you're also going after the Administrative Procedures Act, which, you know, I was writing about it this morning, and I said, well, that's sort of like the the graveyard of presidential executive orders because most presidents don't follow the APA, and courts love to throw things out based on that. So those are two good grounds. Right, let's talk about the APA for just a little bit. I, I mean, this is. They didn't even bother to try to follow the APA on this thing. Yeah, well, uh, the APA has a few provisions, right? So one is that it says when you, uh, basically when you do a program that has a really big impact, you have to go through what's called notice and comment, uh, which is where you give people sort of advance notice and the public can submit their comments on that. That part of that part of the APA doesn't apply here because the HEROES Act says it doesn't apply. But right. what the APA does say is with the HEROES Act, um, what the APA does say is, well, of course, agency actions like this one, this is coming from the Department of Education, agency actions have to be supported by statute, right? There has to be something that Congress has said that says, you get to do this, Department of Education. And the HEROES Act just doesn't contemplate uh, this sort of half a trillion dollars 
40 million people sort of loan cancellation just wiped off the slate, right? So that's that is the that's the APA uh, argument that you are referring to. Well, okay. So, and and I think the APA. It's always fun to see the APA come up in court because judges really like the APA, and it's it's very easy for them to say, "Well, you didn't check all the boxes. Too bad. Go back and do it over again." This happens quite a bit in in challenges to to uh, presidential initiatives. Uh, however, or, and you know, a little bit more broadly, agency initiatives. No, it doesn't necessarily always come from the president. But let's talk about the HEROES Act for a little bit, because not only does the HEROES Act not contemplate this, the HEROES Act was actually very specific in what type of actions that the administration could take in regards to student loans. And that was during the pandemic, during the pandemic emergency, all they could do was make payments for students or for, you know, for recipients so that they didn't fall behind or go into default, but not to pay off the principal. They, they were, it was very specific in the HEROES Act that was for payments only. And it also had a very specific level of appropriation, $45 billion, you know, which these days is not a lot of money, I guess, but I mean, it was $45 billion and that was it. And, and I'm wondering how much that's going to come up into play in, in how you uh, approach your challenge to the HEROES Act on this. Yeah, so I think some of that has overlap with what we're arguing. What we're arguing is that there's a provision of the HEROES Act that says the Secretary of Education can make certain kinds of adjustments for people who are impacted by some sort of disaster or national emergency or something like that, right? Um, So imagine you're in downtown Manhattan. There's a terrorist action, all the banks close. You can't get to the bank to pay your student loans, right? Right. Okay, oh well, you're behind now or you're in default or something like that has happened, the Secretary of Education gets to help you out there in those sorts of situations. Uh, It is not meant to be used in a sort of, well, the whole country is a disaster area because of COVID, so I can just sort of do what I want for anyone I want, right? That's not what the HEROES Act does. It's for people who are injured by some specific incident that puts them in a worse position relative to their student loans. And no one is in a worse position relative to their federal student loans today because uh, by the action of this administration and the last administration, federal student loans repayments and interest accruals have been paused the whole pandemic. They're still paused. No, everyone is in the same position that they were in before the pandemic. So there is absolutely nowhere in the statute that lets the Secretary of Education or the President just take loan principal and say, oh, it's gone now. We're not, we're not going to look at that anymore. So, Michael, I mean, that's, that, that's part of this, right? And I, mean, I, I saw that you're going after some specific statutes. In fact, you're asking for declaratory judgment against some specific portions of that statute in the HEROES Act to strike them down um, that allocate that illegally allocate um, statutory authority, I guess we can say, to the executive branch. Now, this is tricky too, right? Because in a sense, that's what agency law does anyway, right? I mean, agency you know, agency law, broadly speaking, is a, is a concession by both the legislative and executive branches of certain authorities to uh, agencies, which report to the executive, but are answerable to Congress as well. Um, how is this different than 
normal agency law in your estimation? Sure. And there are a lot of problems with normal agency law. Oh, but, I agree with you. Yeah. I, I'm on your side there. Yeah. But let's let's put aside those problems, right? Uh, how things usually go is that Congress says, uh, here are, here's, go make this program, right? Here are some guidelines. Here is sort of what we want the program to look like. Executive agency, go and make the program. What we have here is very different because the portion of the HEROES Act that we're attacking, that we're saying is unconstitutional, what it says is in certain circumstances, like where someone is injured by some sort of disaster or whatever, the Secretary of Education can suspend statutes hmm. as he's fit. So it's saying you get to ignore what Congress has said. And not only that, you get to replace what Congress has said with your own terms and conditions. So there, that is just statutory amendment, right? That is just lawmaking. Right. That is what Congress is supposed to do in our constitutional system, not the executive. Congress makes the laws, the executive enforces the laws. We know that, right? So right. It, it doesn't matter that Congress says, oh, you can, only, you can only do this when you need to, to like help this group of people you don't get to tell an executive agency, go out and like just change what we said and just, you know, make it better. There's, that's completely unconstitutional. Right. And I think that's a really good uh, distinction to make when we're talking about this, <clears throat> excuse me, because I think people just assume that agencies kind of do that anyway, but that's not the case. And in fact, if we were paying attention to like, for instance, the eviction moratoria cases at the Supreme Court, the uh, mask mandate case in Florida, which a friend of mine was uh, the lead attorney on, Brent Hathaway, uh, the courts have been very clear is that you have to have statutory authority. Uh, you have to work within your statutory authority. So Congress grants you statutory authority, and you have to work within that. But agencies don't have the authority to actually replace statutes um, rather than just regulate within whatever whatever boundaries Congress creates for, for that agency. And that's exactly what the CDC did with its um, mask, uh, with its transit mask mandates. It's what they did with the eviction moratoria too. And, um, and the, and the courts have been pretty tough on that. Yeah, that's right. I think, so those cases are about whether the statute even allows this, the agencies to do this, this right. is about, okay, the statute says, yeah, you can ignore other statutes, but that's a problem with Congress is not allowed to say you can ignore statute. That's something that the constitution imposes. And I think you raise a really good point though, with these other cases that we've been talking about that have been coming in from the courts. I think there's a real problem in the country where we've all gotten used to the idea of the president or some agency just saying, we're going to do this now. There's going to be this huge new program. Uh, we're just gonna do it, right? Whether it is, with a minimum wage mandates or a vaccine mandate or eviction moratorium or th this wiping out half a trillion dollars in debt that is due to the American government. I think we're all getting a little used to it. And I think that's very dangerous because yes. there's a reason that the framers put the lawmaking power in Congress, the most accountable branch, separate from the executive authority. And I think we all need to hold on to that. Well, I agree with you, Michael. And I mean, we've been discussing that actually quite a bit at Hot Air 
in, in very in in a number of different ways, but including in this one. And one of the biggest constitutional issues that I see with this, I mean, you're actually going, you, you've got some great detail on this, and including some areas I hadn't actually considered when we were first looking at this. But one of the core constitutional principles is that is uh, you know checks and balances between the three different branches of, of federal government, and the most profound of those checks and balances is the power of the purse. Congress controls the money. The executive branch can only spend what Congress appropriates. And to me, what I'm looking at this, the very first thing that I see in this, and I'm not sure if this is actually part of the part of the lawsuit, it probably is, and I may have missed it, is that Joe Biden is just appropriating money on his own. I mean, this isn't the same thing as Donald Trump's border wall financing, which he was shifting around from from other appropriations, which in itself had, you know, was, I think was pretty constitutionally suspect, even if I kind of like the, the, the policy, I still think it was constitutionally suspect, but this is Joe Biden just simply appropriating $400 billion, $500 billion. Penn Wharton says it's more like a trillion dollars out of thin air without any congressional authorization, which i not even really notifying Congress of this. He's just creating money. And that to me is a much more profound constitutional uh, insult because it basically untethers the presidency and and creates it as an imperial um, uh, as an imperial force. Right. I think you've got it on the uh, hit the nail on the head. It's if whenever you have the president taking on Congress's powers and you're right, the power of the purse is one is probably one of the most powerful things that Congress has in, in, in its toolkit because you know, maybe the president it just goes off and does some program, but it's Congress who gets to say, are we going to fund that program? And so here there is a, obviously a huge, huge expenditure. Uh, it's, that's not a particular uh, theory that Wolf raised in our lawsuit, but it is a significant concern and it plays into the broader, the concern of the separation of powers breaking down and presidents just sort of going off and doing things that they feel like Congress should do, but won't do. Or in Congress simply allowing them to get, to get away with it, which brings me to my main, really my main topic here, which is that this is so illegal, so unconstitutional that if you could get this case into court, it's almost a slam dunk that a, a judge is going to throw this whole thing out. They're going to enjoy it. They're going to stop it from happening. But the problem is, and, and I know that Pacific Legal Foundation, pacificlegal.org, by the way, for those who are wanting to follow along with this case on their own, pacificlegal.org, they do fine work. But this is one of the issues, right, is that how do you get it into court? Because in order to sue over a policy, you have to have, you have, to have a party that is suffering real damages in an irrevocable manner. And, um, and especially if you want an injunction, it's got to be something that is imminent. And um, the 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 party that is most harmed in this, Michael, is Congress itself. And perhaps in an earlier time in America where we actually taught civics, where people understood what the separation of powers actually was and what Congress and when Congress actually did its job, it wouldn't matter which party controlled Congress. They would step in immediately and sue a, a president who tried to pull something like this because they'd be looking to protect their own authority in jurisdiction. Unfortunately, in this instance, though, uh, you've got the party controlling Congress basically cheering on Joe Biden as he is 
um, stepping all over their constitutional authority. And that makes it difficult to find a, a party that could get standing in federal court. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about standing and, and what the challenges were there. Yeah, absolutely. So standing, I think you've mentioned it already, standing basically just means that in order to get into federal court, you have to have a, a real injury that the person you're suing is inflicting on you. You can't just go to court and say, well, I sort of think this thing that the government is doing is unconstitutional or illegal in some way. Can you please fix it? You have to be someone who's actually harmed. Uh, and so there has been a, a lot of talk about, well, who's, who's harmed, right? Who has standing to get into federal court to challenge this if Congress isn't going to do it? Uh, and my client is, is one of, I think, about a million people who will be harmed by this loan cancellation, aside from the fact that we'll all be harmed. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but courts, but courts don't generally take uh, taxpayer um, damage into consideration. I mean, we should just stipulate that up front. Long-standing tradition is that judges don't don't allow taxpayers to say, "Well, they're spending my money, so I'm harmed by this." And the judge is like, "No, no, no, we don't do that." Right. So, yeah. uh, right. So there's that problem with okay, the, the you don't have standing to challenge the government when they're spending your money. But if the government is inflicting a tax injury on you, that, that does suffice for standing. And that's what's happening here. Um, Frank, our plaintiff, is in one of six states that are set to tax this loan cancellation. Uh, that This isn't a, a, a special tax that these six states are, are placing on, on this particular loan cancellation. They just treat a category of loan cancellations as income because well, right. you're, it's just coming off your debt. So it's it's income, not, not all the states, just these six states. Uh, and these, so when this loan cancellation goes into effect, these, these people will see a, uh, you know, they'll see their tax bill increase in April. And depending on the tax rates, it could be a significant sum. For Frank, it's over a thousand dollars, and that's that's the injury that we're talking about here. And there's there's a little bit more nuance that's happening uh, around the standing issue, and I can get into that. But that's the basic injury that we're talking about. Well, I don't think we need to get too far into the nuance of this. I mean, I think what we you know what, what the issue is, is 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 do you have enough standing for a federal judge to to allow the uh, complaint to proceed? And and I think you're covering that. And in fact, I think. I, I'm not sure if Pacific Legal is actively seeking this, but I would imagine that this is the type of thing that could develop pretty quickly into a class action type of lawsuit because there, as you say, there's probably about a million people uh, who fall into this category, who are in one of six states that tax uh, debt forgiveness um, and that are probably in some sort of pre-existing debt forgiveness program already uh, you know frank garrison is in, it's called the pslf and i can't recall what that what that means yeah it's the, it's a public service loan forgiveness program thank you so so that's a congressionally created program that says if you work in public service for 10 years we'll forgive your loans so that's something that has been set up beforehand it's got strict criteria and it's about working in public service and being rewarded at the end of that with your loans being forgiven. It's, and so that's quite different, I think, from the Biden administration's loan cancellation program, where it's just, 
it doesn't matter if you're working in private practice or what have you, we're just going to wipe out for 40 million people. Well, I mean, just on, you know, just on, on, on a simple basis that Congress actually passed the PSLF. I mean, that's, that's, that was passed by Congress. It's a statute and it is a, and it's also, a, you know, it's a, it's a rational approach to it. You want to encourage public service. So it's incentivizes public service. And there's a whole other level to this too, which is that Frank Garrison, if, if he had known that they were going to just willy nilly toss money at him and he could have made other choices and, and made uh, perhaps a, a, a better salary uh, rather than going into public service. Now, I don't think that that's, I don't think you can create standing out of that, but there's certainly a moral uh, argument there that um, it, this undermines the PSLF entirely. And in fact, it sort of makes a mockery of the people who relied on it. Absolutely. I think that that uh, goes across a lot of issues and, and, you know, people who pursued professions where they weren't uh, eligible for federal student loans, right? Or who didn't take out student loans. I mean, we've heard all of this before. It's just, I, I, the real problem is it, whenever you're taking money from one group of people and giving it to another group of people, that's really, really problematic to begin yep. with. But if you're going to do that, it has to go through Congress because it has to be a law that people can plan their lives around. Otherwise, you're just sort of on the fly, completely changing things, spending half a trillion dollars. Uh, just That's just not how our system was set up and for good reason. So I think that you, you've made a good number of clients who are going to join you on this on, on, on the exact same basis that Frank is uh, joining this right now. And by the way, kudos to Frank for standing up. Kudos to Pacific Legal Foundation for standing up as well. But what comes next? You filed the lawsuit, I believe it was today or it was last night. Um, obviously, um, the the respondents are going to have a chance to, is the respondents the Department of Education, by the way? I, I forget. I, I saw it this morning. I'm, I'm forgetting it. Yes, it's the Department of Education and the and the Secretary uh, of Education. And real quick, I just wanted to pick up on that thread you mentioned. Uh, we are inviting people who are in one of these six states, uh, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Missouri, North Carolina, Indiana, and Arkansas, who would be affected by these tax burdens and who are in a public service loan forgiveness program, for example, uh, to join the suit. So uh, get in touch with us and uh, we'll see how it all works out. Uh, sorry, back to you, Ed. No, no, no. I'd say, I mean, it's great. And we should make sure we mention that one more time too. Pacificlegal.org. If you are in similarly situated to Frank Garrison in one of those six states where your loan forgiveness is going to be taxed, especially if you're in the PSLF or some other program similar to that, get in contact with pacificlegal.org and Michael Poon and uh, the other folks that are working on this because, again, you get an opportunity here to, to really push back against something that is incredibly unconstitutional and just simply bad policy. Um, so with that, uh, you filed the lawsuit. Obviously, the Department of Education is going to have a chance to respond to it. Um, mm -hmm. You've asked for an injunction against this. Here's the big question on that. Can you get it fast enough to stop the money from going out? Because that's really the issue here, right? Is that the money, if, once the money is spent, the damage is done and you may not be able to get get it reversed. And so the, the, the trick here is to get this thing in front of a judge and get an injunction as fast as possible to freeze, to freeze the status quo 
so that you can adjudicate this um, fully. Yeah, absolutely. That is definitely a concern for the lawsuit. So we have filed a motion for a temporary restraining order, which would be an injunction to stop the program from entering into force. Uh, and that wouldn't require that the government file its response first. So that is currently in front of the court and the court can act on it at any time. Uh, so it has the opportunity to stop this illegal program before it goes into effect. When does it go into effect, by the way? It's as early as October 1st. That's what I thought. So we're talking Friday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're talking that's a really short timeline, and that's why we had to file now. Yeah. Yes. The rest of us are going to be looking at that district court calendar really closely just to see if, if any orders drop out of out of the clear blue sky on this. But I'm sure that people are going to be able to go to pacificlegal.org and get updates on this. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So any other, um, uh, is there any particular way that uh, potential plaintiffs can sign on to this lawsuit or just go to pacificlegal.org? Do you have a specific email address or, or a webpage for that? Yeah. If you go to pacificlegal.org, you'll be able to find the case there. And there should be a link there now or very shortly thereafter to get in touch with us. Um, if for some reason it's not there, things are moving very fast. So, so it's not clear like what's been done yet and when it will be done. Uh, you can always just contact. We have a uh, a link on the on, on our webpage where it says contact us or something like that, and you can just you can just put your information there and uh, reference the case. There you go, folks. That's how you get involved, uh, especially if you're one of those six states and are in the uh, 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 public service loan forgiveness program or something similar to that, be sure to get in contact with pacificlegal.org. Michael Poon, thank you so much. Hope we can get you back uh, when, other, when, when more developments take place, hopefully crossing our fingers, really good developments. Yeah, uh, yeah hopefully really good developments. Uh, we'll see what the court does, but we'll do our best on our end. Excellent, pacificlegal.org. Even if you're not gonna sign up as a plaintiff, Go there, find out what's going on with this case, and find out with all the other great work that they do at pacificlegal.org. Michael, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Ed. Stand by for just a little bit more from the Ed Morrissey Show coming up next. Thank you for watching or listening to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. You can subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and through the Town Hall Media Player, or you can just come to hotair.com and watch my podcast for free. However, I'd also love to have you join us as members of our VIP and VIP Gold programs. That allows us to defeat the stranglehold that big tech has on information and get you the best information that we possibly can. Plus, we have a lot of new value-added content coming to us from Town Hall Media uh, stars and my good friend Adam Baldwin. He and I are doing the video series, The Amiable Skeptics. It's one hour of discussion a week strictly for our VIP and VIP Gold members. Plus, we have our VIP Gold Chat with Kim Edwards every Wednesday afternoon at 1.30 p.m. We'd love to have you as members. Be sure to join up. Thanks again for watching the Ed Morrissey Show podcast.